0: Hey church family and other folks who listen to our sermon podcast, we had a bit of an issue with the recording this week and so we don't have a file for it. So I decided to go ahead and re-record myself doing the sermon. So if you're someone who wanted to listen back to something because you didn't like something I said or you did like something I said, either way, who knows if it's going to happen again the same way. So apologies for any changes, but we thought we'd we'd rather have some version of it in the podcast feed rather than just miss it completely. So Without further ado, we'll get into the lesson for this week. But before we start really talking about the Bible story that I want us to think about, I wanted to just ask this question for you to think of. Have you ever felt torn between two things in a really, really tough situation? Torn between two different things that you want to do or that are being asked of you? For me, one of the stories that came to mind as I was thinking about this this week is after college I got a job as a video and marketing person for a humanitarian ministry and I really loved their mission and their vision and it really was my dream job in so many ways it was what exactly I was looking for in the past couple of years of my time in college I was hoping I could do once I graduated and so I started working there I worked there for about four and a half years and first job out of college and I started feeling this feeling in that fourth year of feeling like God was telling me I needed to leave that job. And it took me a while to even really listen to that voice and consider that what it was saying because I didn't really want to. I was kind of in denial about, about that. But it was really challenging because, yes, that job was hard and it was exhausting in many ways, but I didn't have other reasons to want to leave. I didn't have another option or cool idea of something I wanted to do instead. That thing was pulling me in a different direction, in terms of a job offer, something like that. It was just feeling like God was telling me it was time for me to leave that job. And it was really hard on me emotionally and in every way you can think of because I'd really come to think of this as my identity, as that job. It was my dream job, like I said, and I loved telling people about it and would talk their ear off about it, all that kind of stuff. And this feeling of not only I don't know what's next, if I do do what I feel like God's telling me to do, I don't know what's next, and I don't know what I would even call myself, and what I would do, and a lot of ways I just felt super scared and very fearful, and I struggled too because there is the inherent feeling of like being torn between I am doing this thing that's good that I feel like God wanted me to do, and now He's He's asking me to do something else, and am I really even reading the situation right? Am I am I hearing right? And after a bunch of talking to people in our church community and family members and stuff like that, I ended up just deciding that I felt like it was worth the risk. If I think God's telling me to do this and I've kind of rolled out a bunch of the other options, a bunch of the other reasons I might want to leave a job, um, then maybe I should just take that risk and assume that it is God telling me to do it. And I'm not telling the story to toot my own horn because there's probably a bunch of stories I could tell if I could really think of them or was, I don't know about of times I maybe missed what God was telling me to do. So I'm not perfect at all. It's just one of the, the biggest times in my adult life I can think of of feeling literally torn just between what my, my heart wanted, what my mind wanted, what I wanted, what God wanted, and I just haven't felt anything that strongly in that way since that's really all internal. No other people involved pulling me in a direction. No people trying to get something out of me or wanting something for me, but just me and God trying to wrestle through this. And so I want you to think for a second, have you felt that way before? Something like that. Have you felt torn between two different things, especially in your faith, something God's wanting you to do, something that is really hard and that you, you don't want to do it, or you have some reason of really struggling between what you feel like God wants you to do and what you would rather do, or it's more comfortable, et cetera. Just think about that for a moment. And if you're someone who's a new believer or maybe you're not a believer, but just considering these things and kind of looking into this stuff, maybe you could think about a situation where you've just felt torn between two really good options in some way or really bad options maybe and just really struggled in not just a like professional sense, maybe like two job offers or something, but in a way that really does affect your heart and your your mind and your emotions and and feels very, I don't know, just challenging on every level. And I think what's helpful about, about doing this is I'm really trying to prep us for this story we're going to talk about today it is one that's hard to relate to in so many ways. And I think, I think what's really helpful is just being able to find some route to be emotionally engaged with the Bible to try to get in some way close to uh, being able to empathize with these characters, these people that God worked through these things that, that they encounter, many of which are kind of hard to relate to. But if we can find some way of getting a little bit in the ballpark of the kind of emotional experience and struggles that these characters in the Bible have, I think it helps us read these stories as more alive. These are human beings with the same feelings and struggles we have, difficulty following God and deciphering a bunch of that stuff. And I think it can help us relate to some of these stories when on, on, on the surface, it seems like it might be kind of hard to do. So the, the story that we're going to talk about today is Abraham and Isaac. This is a really tough one. And now you're probably understanding why I was trying to to prep us emotionally to, to get into a little bit of a space like Abraham's in. If you're familiar with the story, you know he has hard choices that he has to make and struggles between what God wants and what he wants. But if you're not familiar with that story, I'm going to catch you up a little bit on some of what happens with Abraham in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, Abraham and his family, they actually get a really good chunk of time in, in Genesis. I think even just Abraham's lifespan, not his, his offspring, they get about, I want to say like 14 or something chapters of Genesis just devoted to them. And so it's a lot of stuff there. So I'm going to catch you up and then we're going to read this story in about Abraham and Isaac, which is in Genesis 22 So before we get there, what happens is, actually, before I even say that, I want to tell you what my point is, because there's a lot of things that, a lot of thoughts that can pop up about this story and a lot of different ways that you could take it. And I think some people could really have other great points that they want to make with this story. So what I want us to be looking for is this point. God wants us, meaning he wants us, kind of underline us, and he wants us to want him. God wants us and he wants us to want him. I'll expand on that later, but just keep that in mind. So God reaches out to Abraham early on and he makes a covenant with him and he calls Abraham to leave the land of his father and go to where he tells him to go. And he says, he'll bless Abraham. And he says that all the people of the earth will be blessed through him. Later on, God God gets actually more specific about that and tells Abraham he'll have many offspring, greater in number than the stars. But the problem at the time, is that Abraham and his wife Sarah are old and they don't have any kids yet. So God's promising something pretty big there, but it doesn't have at the moment a real clear way of panning out. Then God promises to provide a son through Abraham and Sarah and through that son continue to fulfill his promise to make many offspring from Abraham and bless the world through his family. So what happens pretty quickly after that is Abraham and Sarah get impatient. There's a number of years they're waiting on this son, and so they get impatient and they try to accomplish this in their own way by having a child through Hagar, one of their servants. So Abraham and Hagar have a child together, and it's basically this plot that Abraham and Sarah have to try to get a son by their own means to try to get this blessing further along and moved along on their on their own timetable. And after some time and some problems that have to do with the son that they have with Hagar. Finally, Sarah does get pregnant. They have a son named Isaac. Um, that son grows up, and in his earlier kind of years, 10, 11, 12, somewhere on there, we encounter this story between Abraham and Isaac. So if you want to turn to Genesis twenty twenty two, you can follow along with me. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said. Your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split the wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, that you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named this place the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's fountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offering will possess the city gates, your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. So quite a story. I'm sure none of us feel any conflict or any Weirdness or worries, and have zero questions, and so we'll just finish there and conclude, because it teaches itself. Just kidding. This is one of the like hardest stories. I mean, there's a ton, tons of hard stories, but this is a big one, and I think it's one that a lot of us, if we've grown up in church, has probably never made a ton of sense to us. And I don't want to speak too much for you, but that's been the case for me for a good chunk of my life as a follower of Jesus, believer. There's stories like this that just kind of exist and have a perpetual question mark by them that's like, at some point I need to revisit that and figure out what the heck is going on there. So a couple things first. At the very beginning, we are told something important. God sought to test Abraham. So how does that make us feel? It tells us at the beginning what's going on in this story, and we should have that expectation going in. But how does the idea of God testing us make us feel? At first, I think a little odd on first read, I think most are like, who's, I don't want to be tested. Please don't do that. But I think it shouldn't be that odd in the sense that we can look in other places in scripture and see that this is a thing that God does. And I don't think it's this test is like in a sneaky or conniving kind of way, but really more like a seeing what, what our hearts really desire, seeing what is really going on inside of us and giving us an opportunity and giving the people in the Bible an opportunity to either, Choose to follow God and do what he wants or decide to do what they want. Think of situations like in the garden when they have the tree they're not supposed to eat from and God gives them everything else that they could want and also a tree that he tells them not to eat from. It's a test. Are they going to trust God or are they going to do their own thing? He gives us the freedom, but are they going to trust God or are they going to do their own thing? This happens again in Exodus where God gives a lot of instructions about manna and whether and which days he's going to provide it and giving instructions to people not to hoard the manna not to gather too much but on the seventh day he, there won't be any so gather a little bit extra on the sixth day just some stuff like that and people don't trust him people don't believe him And a bunch of people do it wrong and try to hoard it for themselves and then things go things go bad or just the, a lot of the law the Ten Commandments that are given to Moses and a lot of the law that's given after that as well are all of these things you could view as just tests of how are you going to live your life? Are you going to live in the way that I'm calling you to? Are you going to live your life in the, in the case of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Are you going to follow these things I'm giving you as a way to get right with me and get right in relationship with God with me and, and be forgiven of your sins, but also to be set apart and be marked as my people in the world? Is a bunch of the things that that the law is trying to accomplish with these Israelites. And it's a really a test of are you gonna do that or are you gonna do your own thing? And people have the freedom to do what they want. And then you could even say this Jesus does some of this stuff too with telling Simon Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. I mean, I think Simon very much had the choice to not do that. And yet something about what was going on in, in Peter's heart was revealed by having the opportunity to either deny Jesus or to say, yep, I'm one of his disciples. So this is an idea that's common in scripture. I think we just need to think of it in those terms and see those other examples and we can kind of see what God's doing rather than thinking of it as a weird, sneaky, I don't know, kind of like putting people in a situation where they can't win. I think God has really good purposes here. And so don't feel too weird about the testing thing. And then the next thing is the instructions. It gets right to the, the tough part. Take your son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. And I think one thing we're seeing here is God acknowledges he knows that Abraham really loves his son. He's aware of this level of affection that he has for his son. And one thing I want to say real quick is that that God is, in other places in scripture, very clearly clarifies that he is not a God that condones or wants child sacrifice. The reason that's important is because a lot of other gods did, or a lot of other cultures and that had different idols and gods and practices, practiced child sacrifice. And God makes clear in other places that he is not for that. He thinks that's wrong, not good, not what he wants. But this is really early in the story of God's people. And one thing we need to know is that Abraham is living amongst many people and many other groups who are worshiping other gods and stuff. And the idea of child sacrifice would not have been insane to him. Not that it's not hard and not a confusing request to be given or order to be given, but it's not, he wouldn't respond in the same way that we do in our time period, in our culture to being prompted to go sacrifice a child. But that's something that is a little hard for us to wrestle with, but just know that, you know, in other places, God really makes clear, this is not something I do and not something I'm into, but that's why Abraham, at least one reason I think Abraham doesn't, react in this really like that's outlandish why would you ever ask anyone to do that at all this is a thing that in that time and place would be happening with other gods so there's a couple theories that i want to point out as to why god's asking abraham to sacrifice his son isaac one of them i'm not going to talk a lot about but i just wanted to let you know about it i think it's a good theory it's just not the thing i felt like was on the guy wanted me to talk about today but the, the theory is this Abraham and Sarah have been sinning, and this is an atonement sacrifice, a way to get right with God, to be forgiven of their sins, and that that's why God's asking them to do that. There's a few reasons that this is a pretty good theory, honestly. Abraham's done some stuff, Sarah has done some stuff. They are, if you read Genesis, they're not perfect people at all. They're complicated people like you and me, but they do some pretty out there stuff like Abraham lies multiple times about whether Sarah's his wife or his, his sister and gets, you know, causes problems there. But the biggest thing really stems from their, their plan to have a son through their servant Hagar that God did not want them to do. And they did anyway. And then they mistreat Hagar so badly that she actually runs away and is in the wilderness about to die with her son And then God saves her. Not, not a good situation. Abraham and Sarah were not doing what God wanted them to do there. So it's very possible that God is asking them to, to sacrifice Isaac. And that maybe the first thing they would think of is like, oh, we have been doing some stuff that wasn't so good. And, And so maybe that's what's going on here. But the next thing, the theory that I want to talk about today is that Isaac has become Abraham's real treasure that Isaac has become his real, his hope in and in his main, the main treasure in his heart, if you will. And I think there's a, a lot of ways we can understand and really empathize with Abraham here. I don't think it's crazy. You know, it's like having offspring in this time period was your way of growing your family. If you even separate the covenant stuff for a second, it's a way of growing and building a family, growing your wealth. It wasn't a way of having like, you couldn't just have like a bank account or something like that. It was also sort of your retirement plan. I mean, like when you get old and you can't really farm and do all kinds of stuff that you used to do as well, if you have offspring, then you're taken care of. You know, that was the way that families worked then. And so, and at the same time too, Abraham had been waiting for so long. Him and Sarah were so old before they have, have Isaac. And so finally he has this son and it's his treasure. I mean, I think it's pretty understandable. But then you add back in the covenant stuff. This is also the way, through which God is going to make, fulfill his promises to Abraham to make him have a huge family with many, many offspring and that they will be a blessing to the world, that his family will be a blessing to the world. So there's a ton of things tied up in, in Isaac, both spiritual and personal for Abraham that are making him a really big deal. So whenever he's hearing from God, go and sacrifice your son, I wonder you know, what's going on in Abraham's mind. There's probably a bunch of thoughts. Passing through one, just I'm attached to this kid as my son. I love him. Of course, I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to lose him. Then also, I'm sure the question of, but if I do this, this is the son that God gave me. If I do this, how is this blessing going to happen? How is this covenant going to happen? How is this promise going to be fulfilled? So a bunch of ways that I'm sure that Abraham is just really struggling with this this directive from God. Then they have to travel for three days to the place that God told him to do this, and can you imagine just the agony of those three days? It's a bunch of time to just have thoughts and be really in your head about what's about to happen, looking for ways out, hoping God's going to stop you, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, and you have to act normal, you know what I mean? You're like with your son and your the guys you brought with you and you're having to act sort of normal and, you know, just shoot the breeze while you're on this journey and stuff all the while inner turmoil is going crazy On the other hand, it's not like it's like a lot of time that you can really enjoy. Like, I've got these three sweet days left with my son. Mm, It's going to be so nice. Walk into this hill, mountain somewhere or whatever. We just get to enjoy it and really live it up and and enjoy my last three days with my son. So it's not a lot of time, but it's a lot whenever you're really agonizing over what you're going to have to do. So put yourself in his shoes a bit. Well, once they get there, they are going up the hill just, Abraham and Isaac... And, you know, Isaac asks the obvious question, you know, where, where is this lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Where is the lamb that we're supposed to, to have to sacrifice to be able to do this offering to God? And Abraham responds with God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. A really interestingly, almost perfectly ambiguous response on one hand, Maybe he's thinking, I'm really hoping God's going to provide something else for us to sacrifice. On the other hand, Isaac is at the moment, you know, what he's planning on sacrificing, who he's planning on sacrificing. And God did provide Isaac. I mean, God, you know, helped them conceive and have Isaac. And so it's this really perfectly ambiguous response. But what I really think it shows us is a bit of just at this point, it's been three days. I think we can see that Abraham has been humbled by these three days and he's resigned to do what God's asked him to do because he cites God. God's in control. God's asking me to do this thing. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. God's going to provide the lamb. That's at least how I read that. So then, you know, he, they get up there, they put the wood out. He ties up Isaac, He gets the knife out. I just imagine this, this inner turmoil, the struggle of doing what I want to do, doing what God wants to do really coming to a head for Abraham and just how awful it would be. So, so difficult to do this thing. And he gets the knife and he's about to slaughter Isaac. And then thankfully, and I'm sure Abraham's ears were perked and his spirit was searching and hoping that someone would stop him. And he hears the voice from God. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me. What I think is really crucial about this sentence right here is that God tells us exactly what he was looking for in this test, exactly what he was trying to to do here. People debate about the story a lot. People much smarter than me debate about the meaning and the significance and different details and stuff like that. All that stuff makes total sense. On a reading level that I'm at and an understanding I'm at, to me, this is a really clear statement from God. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me. You know, it's a really key point there, but it keeps going. The story keeps going. Abraham sees a ram caught in the thicket that, you know, God provided there. And Abraham takes this ram and sacrifices it in the place of his son instead. So, you know, if the sin thing was happening and this is what the reason that that he was asked to do this sacrifice and Abraham doing it, going through with it, honoring God, atoning for the sins, trying to get right with God through the sacrifice, the fact that he still does this, I think is really significant. And then after he does that, do you hear the voice from heaven again? And it says, by myself, I have sworn by myself, I have sworn. And then he reiterates the whole covenant again with to Abraham about what he's going to do through Abraham and through his family. But I think the significant thing is that that first sentence, by myself, I have sworn by my own name, by the name of Yahweh. So God's really doubling down on this thing. And I think that, again, tells us what he was looking for here is is, Abraham going to be the right person for me to to accomplish my mission and and my goal to redeem humanity through is he going to be on my agenda here or is he going to be doing his own thing and uh, or is he really just obsessed with with Isaac and having a son now and that's all he wanted or needed and and is he really on on my agenda is he really doing this to serve and love me as God so he reaffirms this. This covenant and swears it by his own name, by Yahweh, because you've obeyed. And so one of the things that that I've read recently, a few of the guys and I have read, been reading this book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. He talks about this story in a really good way. And I just want to read this section of him explaining this just to help give some texture and some understanding. And I think he does a good job of writing about some of the emotions that Abraham might have been feeling. So here's the quote. God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat and then forbade him to lay a hand upon the boy. To the wondering patriarch, he now says in effect, it's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love Now you may have the boy sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Then heaven opened and a voice was heard, strongly reaffirming the covenant promise. The old man of God lifted his head to respond to the voice and stood there on the mount, strong and pure and grand, a man marked out by the Lord for special treatment, a friend and a favor of the Most High. Now he was a man wholly surrendered a man utterly obedient, a man who possessed nothing. He had concentrated his all in the person of his dear son and God had taken it from him. God could have maybe begun on the margin of Abraham's life and worked inward to the center, but he chose rather to cut quickly to the heart and have it over in one sharp act of separation. In dealing thus, he practiced an economy of means and time. It hurt cruelly, but it was effective. I've said that Abraham possessed nothing. Yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy sheep, camels, herds, goods of every sort. He also had his wife and his friends. And best of all, he had a son, Isaac, safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There's the sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books on systematic theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. That's the end of the quote. So, the point I want to make and focus on with the story is about the good news of the kind of relationship that God wants with us. It's really good news. He's this very personal, very relational God. Remember my point He wants us, and He wants us to want Him. God wants us, and He wants us to want Him. He gives us a choice. But what he really wants is this closeness, this mutuality, this close relationship, this exclusivity. He wants us. He wants us to want him. God made us for His. He wants us to want him and love him back. He wants that closeness with us. He doesn't just want things from us. He doesn't just want, you know, good behavior from us. He wants us. He wants us as his children. And so on the flip side of that, this, this story of Abraham begs us to ask this question. Do we want God or just the blessings that he gives us? Do we want God or do we want just the blessings that he gives us, the things of his creation, the experiences of life, the friendships we have, all of that stuff? Do we want him or just the stuff he gives us? And I think we can see this example here is that was Abraham perhaps in his heart, was he content with now having Isaac? That's all he wanted from God. And he finally had a son and he loved him, and it brought him all that he wanted in life you know, security, you know, retirement, love, affection, all that stuff. Was he satisfied with that and no longer needed God, at least in his heart? What would it be for you in this test? What would be the thing that's in the temple of your heart that God would want to test to see if you're willing to give it up? You're willing to put it aside so that God might reign there unchallenged. I want you to think about that for a moment. This is something that we see God being pretty pretty good about, testing and challenging us about, and not just the story. This is one of the most stark examples. But remember in the Gospels in the New Testament, there's this really interesting story where a rich young ruler comes and approaches Jesus and asks him, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, um, well, have you loved God? Have you loved your neighbors? Have you followed the, the law? And the guy says, yep, I've done all these things ever since I was a kid. And then Jesus says, well, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And what happens? Have you heard the story? The rich young ruler turns around and walks away discouraged. And Jesus looks at him and he loved him. And he says, how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. But what I think we see here is Jesus pinpointing in that instant, what is the thing? What is the test? What is the thing that is at the center of the temple of this guy's heart? His wealth, his riches. And he asks him, would you go give those things up? And he can't, he won't. He makes his choice right there. We see other examples of this type of, of sort of test or just God making clear that he wants to be first and centermost in our hearts. Whoever surrenders his life will save it. Whoever gives up his life will save it. Take up your cross daily and follow me. This very radical sacrifice. And it's it's all over, you know, the New Testament and Old Testament in many different ways. You can see God, you know, having people have to choose whether they're going to follow him or, or not. And, and letting us know what, what this costs, you know. And so and we see God himself doing, doing the same thing, really, if you think about it. He loves you so much. He's willing to send his only son to die and be able to forgive your sins. God gives up much for us. He loves you so much that he does that. So we're thinking about what the test is for us. What's the thing in our hearts if something's come to mind for you? It's easy to think anything, isn't it? But are you prepared to toss it onto the fire, to bind it up, to strike the match, to pull out the knife? Are you able to get that far instead of just thinking, oh, I've identified something that's pretty big in my heart. Are we, are we willing to get that close, you know, to that close to actually giving something up? I think what's interesting here too, is that many of the things that crowd our hearts, the temples of our hearts aren't inherently bad things. You know, it's, it's not things like stealing and murder and destruction and violence and you know all these other things that might be like, oh, yeah, that stuff is awful. Why is that even in there in the first place? Our hearts get crowded by things that really aren't inherently bad things, but they make for poor gods. They are poor replacements of God. They don't give us eternal life. They did not create the world. They are not able to redeem and renew creation the way that God is trying to. So I want to say if God's put something on your heart already, Write that down. Take a note on your phone. What has he put on your heart that is in the temple of your heart that's, that's in the way? And if not, otherwise, just earnestly pray about that this week. Pray that God will, will show you what is in the temple of your heart. Spend some time really listening. Write down everything that comes to mind that passes across your mind. And then ask God what to do. One thing we see in this case is Abraham had a tough situation, but he didn't have to think super hard in the sense that all he had to do was listen and do. And then he listened again later when that voice spoke again. And then he didn't, didn't, didn't slaughter Isaac listened and did listened and didn't. He didn't have to figure everything out on his own. He didn't have to, you know, know the mind of God, so to speak. He just had to listen, listen to the Holy spirit this week, listen to what he tells you to do, what things he puts on your mind. Now let's think about us as a group. I mean, what, why do we as people, as humanity, even try to do things apart from God? Why do we even think our way is better for a moment? Why do we let so many things crowd the temples of our hearts as just a group, as a society, as, as humans? You and I are part of this Abrahamic promise now. It's, this is the blessing that we're still under, that God has been building this big family. He's adopted us into it. He's wanting to bless the world through it and redeem and renew all of creation. We are part of that blessing. We're part of this thing that God is doing, this family that he's making and building. So that should excite us. That should that should be, that's a way that we are connected to this story deeply in in what Abraham's got going on. We are still part of this big family. That's We're part of God, you know, continuing to fulfill that promise and we get to be part of it too. But these kind of hard stories like this, these kind of hard lessons to think through and and stories of, of tension that people experience it made me think of this moment in John when Jesus is teaching and there's a lot of people following him that are having a hard time understanding his teachings and just struggling. And they say things like, I mean, this is such a tough teaching. Who can follow it? Who can understand it? And it says from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of life, of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What would it be like if we as a church really took that to heart? God alone has these words of life. God alone is the one who has eternal life and is going to renew all of creation, restore creation, adopt us into his family. What would it be like if we really took that to heart as as just a church? if that's really how we lived our lives. The temples of our hearts were, were really with God at the center of each of us. What about if our city was like that? Our country, or our world, just keep expanding that idea. I think things would look super different. I mean, how people spend their time. What people would we invest in and spend time with and really care about deeply? How would we use our money? How would we think of that even as a resource How would we think about our work and and how much time we spend doing that with the people we work with and how would we think intentionally about those situations if God is at the center of the temple of our hearts? What about hobbies, trips, entertainment, the various other ideologies floating around and many different things to think and wonder about and ways to view the world? I mean, how would we be radically changed? How would the world be radically changed if we as a group really took this idea to heart and had God really at the center of the temple of our hearts. I want to close trying to sort of underline the main point I have. God wants us, and He wants us to want Him with this quote from Augustine of Hippo. I think it really does a good job of encapsulating, and much better than I could, just, just the kind of relationship God wants with us, the kind of God He is. But here's the quote Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. God made us. We are his. We're his children. He loves us so much. And our hearts really, truly belong no other place than with him. He alone has the words of eternal life. We're restless. We're going to search everywhere and never find what we'll find when we when we find God when we're resting in him i love that quote i'm sure I do it one more time thou hast made us for thyself o lord and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee the other thing is that's true about this thou hast made us for thyself god doesn't need us in the sense that he made us as workers or you know to have his hired hands around the farm or whatever he made us for himself. He made us as his children who he loves. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need something from us. He wants us as as his children, just as, as a child is loved by a parent. Um, God loves us and doesn't expect or want something from us more than he just wants us and wants our love and, and wants a, a close relationship with us if you missed church this past week, we had some really cool things shared that I wish we had the recording to share with you, but we had both Angelica sharing her testimony, which was just amazing about her relationship with her mom and her friend and her friend's mom and just helping them do a really hard time. And Nicole shared about did the communion thought and shared about just motherhood because of, you know, mother's day and, and shared about motherhood and just the way that God views us as his children. And me preaching this sermon was helped immensely by their amazing thoughts and stories and, and just what God's done in their life and put on their hearts and stuff. And so I am sorry that you don't get to hear that part too. And that I don't get to, I can't really encapsulate that and transfer it to you, but I would, you know, encourage you to talk to Angelica or Nicole and just get some of their perspective and some of what they shared. If you can, I'm sure they'd be willing to share that with you. So anyway, let's close in prayer. Thanks for hanging out with me today on the podcast on the re re-record version. And let's ask God to help us. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being this kind of relational God, this loving, good, good father who actually wants what's best for us, who's actually good, who actually wants to fulfill promises, who wants great things for the world, who wants to renew creation, who wants to adopt us into your family. You're such a good God. Lord, these stories are hard to really think through and to do so faithfully. And I just pray that as we as individuals think through this stuff and try to apply this to our lives, you, that you would really guide us. Your Holy Spirit would be all in the conversation. You'd help us to to have our hearts be open and our ears open to hear you. And I just pray that you'd help us to put you at the center of our hearts. Nothing has been harder for humanity over our whole history. We're always trying to go our own way. Lord, help us to be different. Help us to submit, surrender to you, then know that we are poor gods and the other things that we put in our hearts are also very poor placements for you. And so we just need your help. And we're just so grateful that you're so patient with us and give us stories and examples and and things to challenge us and and that you are patient with our very slow growth. I pray that as a church, you would help us just take this to heart, be a church who just loves you and wants you and wants you more than we want any blessings from you and wants to what you ask us and be your people here and be part of your family. And, um, that that would be the most important part of our lives. The most important thing in our hearts, our biggest treasure is being your, your children and for you to be our father. Lord, we love you. You're the best. And there's no one else worth praising. In name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.